Welcome to Talking in This Climate, a series where we discuss the different aspects of talking about climate change and environmental issues. We're a mix of environment students, graduates, and environmental communication professionals who are really interested in how we talk about climate in this climate. Each episode, we'll dive into a different theme, looking at things like language, the media, communicating through frames and metaphors, Indigenous perspectives on environmental issues, communicating across disciplines, issues of trust and misinformation, emotion, and how we can ultimately strive to become more mindful listeners, communicators, and agents of change. We're so excited for this journey and so grateful that you're here traveling with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. So, Sue, uh, yes. welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank it's, uh, you so great much. great to have you. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I had a uh, listen to the previous ones, and it's really great with all the sound editing and everything. It's very professional. <laughs> oh, good. Glad you think so. But yeah, we're super stoked to have you. Uh, welcome, everyone, to episode seven. In this episode, we will be talking with Sue Ryu, who is a PhD fellow at the Aarhus School of Architecture in Denmark, but she's calling tonight from Christchurch. And this episode, we will be on the topic of nonverbal ways of communicating about climate change in nature, with a particular focus on the power and the limitations of maps and the power that they have to both reveal and conceal. So a little bit of a different episode structure. I hope you enjoy it. Do you think you could just tell the listeners briefly about your professional background and also how your interest in seaweed and maps developed? Yes. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Sue, and uh, I have a background in architecture from New Zealand. So I am a Korean New Zealander, and I've worked in perhaps several big to small architecture firms around the world, uh, England, uh, New Zealand, and Korea. As Tim uh, said so, I decided to pursue a, a career path in research and um, doing my PhD in Denmark. And because Denmark is a very low-lying country, so they're very much looking for new solutions to deal with the impact of you know, rising seas and also this sort of what do we do with our cities when the water levels are going higher? What is that border or the boundary between where the city and the sea meet? What do we do with this uh, area? So that's kind of what sort of the research general focus was. And I guess I had this sort of um, nagging or very intuitive idea in the back of my head and and that's kind of where the seaweed idea comes in. And I just thought, what about if we used seaweed to rethink this edge condition? And um, I, I guess it comes from the fact that uh, I grew up as a, a Korean. I have Korean family and um, seaweed is a huge cultural sort of, you know, it's part of a huge uh, food culture. So... But nobody really saw it in another way other than something for food. So, yeah, so sort of like put these little random puzzles together and, and I sent in an application and um, uh, and I got it. So that's kind of my professional background. 
And I guess now uh, my three years in doing this PhD would be trying to investigate how we could use seaweed um, to rethink this boundary condition and rethink the way we look at the sea, but also um, trying to create awareness that the seaweed uh, not only has cultural significance in many cultures, but also uh, it absorbs 20 times more carbon than land-based plants. They clean the water. They provide the most uh, biodiverse habitats in the world. Uh, they don't require any land. They don't burn like the Australian forest. They don't use uh, pesticide or they don't need fertilizers. And I really think they're sort of incredibly underrated in, in their beauty and their worth. It's hard not to get excited about seaweed when you put it like that too, I think. Um, <laughs> Could you explain what you mean by edge condition or boundary condition for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, currently, a lot of the way uh, sort of urban cities have developed is, um, you know, you have uh, more sort of, I guess, inverted commas, natural conditions like a beach where you have, you know, sand and then you have the water and the tide is able to come in and out. But in an urban situation, we have blocked it out um, and we've sort of expanded out into the ocean. So we reclaimed land from the sea and we filled it with concrete and rocks and then we built our cities on top. And a lot of this uh, development came after the Industrial Revolution, where we had to develop ports and harbors. And now, you know, there's a lot of desire to live in this boundary zone where we want to be close to the water. So there's a lot of recreation facilities and infrastructure. There's a lot of, you know, apartment buildings and, you know, commercial buildings now at the harbor front. Um, and, you know, Australia, New Zealand, we, waterfront is the most contested space. But when you have sea level rise and that's coming into these spaces, so that area becomes very vulnerable because you've invested a lot of money um, into the space where it's now under threat. So I guess now the sort of urban planners and people, uh, politicians are trying to sort of look at how do we protect the space or what happens in 50, 100 years from now? Um, what can we do to um, ensure that, uh, yeah, that our cities can sort of handle this excess of water and the, the sort of current infrastructure and the life that we lead in this boundary zone between land and to see. So like the the place where two competing or not necessarily competing but two different distinct environments meet and it's yeah. a yeah contested space. Yeah, and it's vulnerable. That's the that's the yeah. reason why it's a problematic zone if you want to see this mm. problem. You did mention the word threat there and and you say vulnerable. Uh vulnerable in terms of what and with regard to to whom or to what. So are we talking uh, vulnerability in, from the sense of like just the human uh, development perspective or, or from nature as well, like the nature perspective as well? It, it is a bit of a contested space. Um, so uh, so depending on what, what how much, I guess, greenhouse gases we reduce in the next decade, um, that will determine how much the sea will rise. And then that will also determine like the impact of storm surges. So that's like a one-off event where the storm pushes the water level up, goes into the city, and then it comes out. So that's kind of what happened in Hurricane Katrina in the States. Mm -hmm. So 
because of that, it, it's vulnerable um, as the water level rises, the storm surge will be an addition to that. So that would even be higher. So you would need to protect these infrastructure. Uh, for example, let's say um, a stormwater pipe. If the water goes in there and the wastewater pipe and stormwater pipe is connected, then it will just bring out all the sewage out into the streets, for example. Or mm -hmm. that a lot of our buildings aren't designed to be sort of inundated uh, with water, whether it's a short or a long period of time. So that will cause a lot of damages. And in many cases, you know, human lives as well. So if the storm surges are violent, and in many cases they predict that it will be more frequent and more violent, then you have the threat of human life as well. And also by continually, I guess, building out into the water, we're also um, interfering with a lot of the ecological systems and the connections and very intricate sort of entangled food webs and, you know, migration patterns and so on. So there's a lot at stake. And what exactly are you researching here and what sort of tools are you using to collect your, your data? Well, so, so far we've had a very much of an um, engineering approach to like, this, you know, how we protect our cities. This is typically called a hard approach. And that's when you sort of try to control or uh, block the water coming into the cities. And mm. that means like something typical, like a seawall or a pump or a gate that opens and in and out. And that's kind of been the, the dominant way of handling this excess water that we don't want in our cities. But um, we're coming to find more and more that there's a severe limitations to uh, this sort of method. It's a it's it's worked out for us. Like Netherlands is a great example of how it has sort of worked out for them. But there is a definitely a limit in a sense that a wall uh, has a certain limit. And what happened, let's say, in Hurricane Katrina is that the storm surge level went above the wall, and it it, it flooded all these areas, and the water couldn't flush out again. So the wall actually acted as a barrier and trapped the water in inwards. Um, and also it's expensive. It's a very expensive system to uh, maintain. And also the water also travels below the wall as well. So you're not dealing with water that's coming up from the ground up. And again, it's this kind of, it gives you this false sense of security where people go, oh, we have a wall so we can still continue to develop here. Uh, whereas Perhaps some cases the best option is to retreat and then return this area to be something that's perhaps a bit more resilient, uh, a bit more adaptive. Uh, and a lot of the systems that they're trying to use is trying to use nature-based solutions, so in, like reviving wetlands or um, trying to revive, uh, let's say, uh, oyster beds and so on and natural reefs, which sort of mitigate the impact of these storm surges. So my approach is like investigating more of the nature-based approach because a lot of the work has been done already on the hard approaches, but in particular looking at seaweed and also perhaps um, just like the way we landscape on land with trees and flowers and so on. And what about if we seascaped with seaweed at this coastal edge so that not only it you know, provide some level of uh, 
protection, but also more about the idea that perhaps that we need these guys to be more exposed and we need to be able to see them and touch them and interact with them so that we're a little bit more aware of what's going on under the under the sea level and not always preoccupied with what's happening above sea level, basically. Yeah, and I, I think what you mentioned there about exposing what's below the surface of the water as significant for people who live or work uh in those boundary zones. Uh, last time we caught up, you actually shared a really nice story of a lady called uh, Mary Tharp, or Marie Tharp, who was a geologist and oceanographer who created some of the first maps of the world beneath the water. And that changed the way that people imagine two thirds of the whole world, the whole planet. Um, and Thinking about what's below the surface, uh, why or how could maps potentially be tools for, I guess, communicating and letting people know uh, what's below the surface and, and why that's significant? Yeah, um, for the listeners who've never heard of this woman, she was a pioneer in sort of bringing this ocean bed to life. And back in the 50s, um, a lot of the scientists thought that the ocean bed was just lifeless. There was nothing really there because they didn't really have that much means to, you know, investigate what really was down there. I mean, they, there's this famous sort of uh, saying that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about this the ocean beds so um yeah so in this 50s this lady was hired um to as a research um a position to map the uh, the the ocean bed which is a huge immense task and the reason why she was assigned because um a lot of actually men went to war and they all these research positions that wasn't really available to women before was available so thank god that she took this position and um, the incredible thing is that she at that time you had to draw maps by hand which is a another uh, huge undertaking um, in itself and the sort of this sort of I guess at the time the amateur equipment that they had they had to go out obviously into the to the ocean on an expedition on a boat but she wasn't allowed to go because she was a woman so she sort of got the data from the men and she sort of had to um, process the data and then represent it visually as a 3D map drawn by hand. And a lot of the sort of the information, there were a lot of holes um, and she kind of used her artistic license to sort of fill in the gaps. Um, and what she found through this, her mapping exercise was that the the continents uh, uh, were actually one that they actually fit, that there was actually a tectonic sort of uh, evidence of continental drift and that the plate tectonic theories. So sh she sort of discovered this through her maps. Uh, and then she was like, wow, maybe this is what happened. Um, and maybe this perhaps could be an explanation to why we have uh, the world in the state that it is. And when she sort of proposed these evidences, her claims were sort of dismissed uh, as, quote, girl talk. And um, 
Of course, uh, later on, uh, her theories were proven correctly as our technology developed. And uh, a lot of, now that we have more sophisticated um, technology to measure uh, the ocean bed, they actually found her maps to be incredibly accurate, which is, I think, is quite extraordinary. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess the important thing about her map is that it made it really clear. If you, if, if you were able, to, I mean, I think you really need to see this map to be convinced, but it really showed that the distinction between land and water was not as cutthroat as we thought it was. I mean, if you open Google Map, uh, it's very like biased towards you know land-based uh, information, and the sea is sort of this black, dark, mystical, unknown mass. Whereas her maps, it was you know islands were essentially mountains on the water. There were um, rugged terrains of valleys and ridges below the water. It just looked like a continuation of land, and it really sort of highlighted visually that that we were all sort of connected. And I think it is through these visual representations like maps that really have the power to show aspects that were once considered sort of invisible and unknown and mysterious to be visible and understandable and uh, in some sense also beautiful as well. It's It's an amazing story. It's amazing to me still how much impact her maps were able to have um and and i suppose it just shows like in history and probably today as well that mapping is not like a, an objective uh exercise you know yeah. it's something which is embedded in the values and the the limitations of the culture that produces those those maps definitely definitely um in terms of the some of the technology um, for cartographers today, how have things changed since the 50s? And do you see any new possibilities uh, and limitations for maps with in today's sort of time? Maybe just with regards to the types of mapping that you might be doing with your PhD? Um, yeah, sure. Just so to, I guess, start off with, you know, how has maps developed? In today's time, the obvious one is, uh, you know, GIS and also Google Maps. You know, now we have like access to, you know, this global aerial map of um, the whole world. Um, like I think yesterday I was watching a documentary about this guy who was uh, trying to figure out bus routes for school and saw on Google Map that there was this car that was like inside this pond. And they reported to the authorities and found that there was this, it was a body of this guy was missing it. 20 years ago so you know like they couldn't solve that 20 years ago but some guy on google maps you know like hey there's a car in this pond maybe we need to find you know investigate so google maps has changed that completely now everybody has access to this and also google maps is also like committed to um also mapping uh the ocean bed as well they've already done that in several Mm. places so you can actually go into australian waters and you know look at all the 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 great barrier reef and so on um Mm. so there's that amazing sort of technology but i guess in terms of like answering your sort of second question about the limitations of maps um i think 
it would be incredibly naive to sort of think that maps are just uh, this accurate depiction of this physical world. There's a lot of power in the map maker to decide what information to show or highlight and what information to hide. And a lot of the times, you know, a lot of thing information to manipulate as well. And there's definitely agendas in um, the map making uh, process. So I guess the so I guess an example, like a classic one, is the Mercator projection, where like the continent of Europe and was like appeared much bigger than like it's relative to other continents like Africa and South America. And by mm. doing this, it gives the impression that Europe has much stronger presence presence on the globe. So mm. that's sort of this kind of uh, sort of a manipulation of um, how you use maps, and it's uh, also like a typical one that I pointed out earlier. If you map the oceans to be this black, dark thing, then what does that? How does that impact the way we look at oceans? You know, it's hard mm. to be interest, interested in something that actually shows no information. So perhaps by continually using maps like that, maybe we might develop a terrestrial, like land-based bias. You know, mm. so I think, yeah, we really have to be careful about the what you know what information that we show and hide and because you can't show everything so we have to be very strategic and very sensitive about these things um, mm. and you know maps are used every day in decision making processes whether it's politicians or whether it's um, yeah like urban planners and so on and it's you know being a critical instrument to sort of abuse a lot of the minorities you know um so it is a, a very powerful tool that can be abused um so we need to be really vigilant so that we use it for the right purposes mm. um, what about best practice then so if there are these sort of risks of maps and mapping processes being you know potentially co-opted by powerful groups or more powerful groups um are there any sort of uh, standards or protocols or, you know, uh, caveats that you think, I don't know, might help if they're brought with a map? Because as you said, you know, a map can't show everything, um, but they can be very useful. Is there anything that you think we should change or do you think it's more about just being aware, you know, when we're looking at maps of what it shows and what it doesn't show and maybe who, who made it and how old the data is and that sort of stuff? Yeah. I think, yeah, all of those things you mentioned is important. Um, and it's also, I think, important to be transparent about what the intention of the map is trying to do. So, mm. you know, obviously, if you want to show just infrastructural connections, um, all the trains and transport and deliberately hide everything else, um, that needs to be made clear uh, mm. that this is a map for infrastructure. Um, but also, I think uh, we need to, there's a lot of um, complexity now that we're dealing with, especially when you're dealing with climate change, where perhaps the mapping should also include like non-humans and also going beyond the land sort of terrestrial boundaries and also including stuff that's in the ocean as well. Mm. You mentioned uh, climate change and I know last time we spoke we had some chats about um, like the word and the conceptualizations of nature. Um, and this is a bit of a, a theme and a through line through our podcast. So I did want to ask you 
how your perspective on nature, so in quotation marks, has changed over the last few years and how you see nature now, whether or not that's still a useful term, I'm not sure. At the end of the day, a lot of these like term like nature is essentially an invented term. It's an artificial construct. So uh, that's the first thing that I realized is that, of course, it's invented um, because a lot of indigenous cultures, they don't even have the term nature. They don't have the separate thing to describe you know, non-human things. So to me, that was the first like, wow, that's incredible. And and I guess the second thing that I sort of learned from um, engaging in my PhD is that we often sort of conflate the term nature with only sort of this romantic vision of this pristine wilderness, you know, something that's not touched by human, which we all know doesn't exist anymore. And also, I guess there are another like side effect of viewing nature in this romantic way, which is sort of our typical way of, you know, uh, looking at nature is that we also kind of neglect things that are not part of this vision. So a pot plant in your balcony is not nature, you know, Uh, a rat is not part of this nature, like grass in your back garden is not nature, but polar bears and mountains and beautiful lakes are. (laughs) So that because of this sort of dream world that we've cooked up, it's problematic when you're trying to deal with like complex issues with climate change and, you know, resource depletion and so on. Um, And this sort of dualistic thinking of nature is this thing over there and cultures over there is just not accurate, you know, and it's not representing this like complex like interrelations and entanglements between like plants and humans and you know um, environments and matter and so it really made me question like oh what kind of actions does this sort of thinking lead to is does a lot of our problems sort of branch from this sort of thinking mm-hmm. um, and a lot of theorists claim that we should stop using this term of nature because it's so embedded with this like romantic vision of nature that we should really start be using terms that really highlight interrelations such as ecology. And I think what you're saying about the word nature is that when we use the word nature, we actually reinforce this idea or this truth that we, we believe in that things are separate and it prevents us from engaging with that interrelatedness and complexity and interdependency and Mm -hmm. um, dynamism and things. Perhaps this understanding of nature, because maybe our understanding of what nature means might change in a few years, who knows, um, is like a hangover from like the the romantic – periods of the sublime and and wilderness and this under like this kind of yeah this consumption of uh the other or the wild or nature yeah um from back in the day yeah it, i think it, it really if we cut to the chase it comes from like a, a terror like it comes from an absolute fear you know it's not a coincidence that a lot of the nursery rhymes a lot of the old european nursery rhymes at least um have you know the deep dark forest as the evil place is the place where uh, kids are not allowed to go. It's like the birth of a lot of uh, 
fairy tales and moral lessons, um, you know, where the wild is associated with um, the things that um, are against safety and society and civility. Um, and it's so interesting to hear that in some Indigenous languages they don't have a word for it mm-hmm. because they don't have that conception exactly. of, like, separation. Yeah. It's because they just didn't need a word for it. It was embedded in their culture, in their understandings of the world. Have you ever heard about the great chain of being? Uh, it's a sort of Middle Ages sort of Christian sort of view of um, sort of the hierarchical kind of order of the importance of being. And I thought it was interesting that they put water at the bottom, considering that we are like <laughs> 70% water and if you don't yeah. have water, we'll die, you know? Uh, so it's this kind of this simplistic way of uh, looking at water um, and you know, human and non-human things. Yeah, so I think a lot of these, you know, thoughts have, you know, infiltrated us to modern times, but I guess now we need to think of new stories and new narratives to, you know, take us to the next century. And, you know, it might not work. Maybe ecology doesn't work. We don't know, but I think it's worth sort of giving it a go um, and moving on from this, you know, this dominant conception of nature. Just, we, I mm. think we just have to try and see what happens if we think in a different way. Yep. I think that's a, a wonderful note to end this interview on, and I think it gives all of us some food for thought about maybe even experimenting ourselves with the words that we use. And uh, I don't know. I know there was this recent movement away from the word biodiversity to like biocomplexity mm-hmm. uh, because biodiversity doesn't necessarily represent like uh, genetic diversity or the interactions between uh, different species and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I think uh, what I've learned from this interview, Sue, is that we need to experiment and we need to question a lot of those words that we might use daily and just take for granted, yeah. whether that be nature or climate or anything like that, because they have a real impact. Um, Sue, thank you so much for joining us Uh, on this episode of Talking in This Climate. It's uh, been such a pleasure. No, thank you for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. This podcast has been created and produced by Tim, Emily, Fani, Ewan, Zoe and Rosie with support from the Climactic Collective. This podcast has been made for educational purposes only and any advice and information presented is general in nature and does not consider your specific circumstances. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating as it helps others find us. If you're looking for more podcasts on similar topics, make sure to visit the Climactic Collective website, climactic.com.au. Thanks for listening.